Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July 26, 2018. This is episode 2258 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Thursday. That means we have a listener call show. This is where you pick up the phone, you dial the number 866-65-THINK. 866-65-THINK. Dial that number and you can leave me a message like the ones that you'll hear today. Ask your question or make your point up front in one to two sentences maximum. Then give me the details. would be more likely to get on the air. The other rules, of course, call from a quiet area and make sure you have good signal on your phone if you're using your cellular phone like most of us are actually going to use today. I don't, I know most of you are probably like me. I don't have a landline phone. I just don't. I haven't had one for, oh God. Eight years now, something like that. So most of us are going to be using cell phones, smartphones, etc. Just make sure you do have uh, some signal on there. If you're down to one bar, like half a bar, there'll be nobody to tell you that your call's like yeah, that, right? So you won't know. So then your call won't get on the air, and you'll be sad and you'll cry. So here's what we got for you today. We have best practices with gun safes and gun storage. We have dealing with wasps around pools in the summertime. Dealing with crawfish burrowing into dam walls. Uses for and easy and easy ways to harvest elderberries. What's next up for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies? And finding the right trees to plant in your particular area. We'll dig all into all of that in just a moment. Before we do, since uh, uh, David Verne is on hiatus from the history segment, I've been doing. Uh, this day in history, and this day in history, July 26th, we're going to go back to the year 1775. What happened today? Congress establishes the United States Post Office. On this day in 1775, Congress establishes the United States Post Office and names Benjamin Franklin, the first United States Postmaster General. William Goddard, a patriot printer, frustrated that the Royal Post Service was unable to reliably deliver his Pennsylvania Chronicle to its readers or deliver critical news for the paper to Goddard, laid out a plan for a constitutional post before the Continental Congress on October 5th, 1774. Congress waited to act on the plan until after the Battle of Lexington and Concord on April 19, 1775. Benjamin Franklin promoted Goddard's plan and served as the first postmaster general under the Continental Congress beginning on today, July 26, 1775, nearly one year before the Congress declared independence from the British Crown. Franklin's son-in-law, Richard Bach, took over the position on November 7, 1776, when Franklin became American embassy to, emissary to France. Franklin had already made significant contributions to the Postal Service in the colonies while serving as a postmaster of Philadelphia from 1737 and as joint postmaster general of the colonies from 1753 to 1774. Uh, when he was fired for opening and publishing a Massachusetts Royal Governor Thomas Hutchinson's correspondence. Uh, yeah, see, I think one of the lessons here from this is that the founders didn't wait until we were free to start acting like free and independent nation. If you think about something like running a post service, uh, that's something, in, you know, in, in at least in the time, government did. There's not what a lot of private businesses doing that back then. You don't didn't have FedEx or UPS or what have you. And I think one of the things we can learn from our founders, if we want more independence, whether we seek it through um, through through some sort of direct revolution or a secession by a state or something like that, or just greater independence by claiming it, that action first. In fact, our founders really tried not to declare independence. Yeah, at least many of them did. They sought every remedy possible before taking that step, but they began to take actions in case that step came to be long before it did. That's a lesson we can learn from, and I think one worth learning from this day in history. Again, July 26, 1775, birth of the post office and appointment of one of our founders, Benjamin Franklin, as postmaster general. Anyway, guys, before I take your calls, let me remind you real quick, you can help support this show by uh, joining the MSB. That's the Member Support Brigade. Guys, look, I know a lot of you guys probably think, ah, Jack's got enough members at this point. You know, we pay the bills, no problem. But 
New members are the lifeblood of this business. And it's, it's, if you really think that this show's worth listening to, consider becoming a member today. It'll cost you about 18.3 cents an episode if you look at it that way. It's like voluntarily paying for the content. But then just use the discounts and get your money back. There's really no good reason not to do it. Uh, if you're in our space, just the money you would save on something like seeds and trees every year and probably put the money back in your pocket. And then there's like another 65 places to get discounts from. Um, if you're a ButcherBox fan, you know, $10 off a month. That's $120 a year. Uh, even if you do every other, every other month with ButcherBox. ButcherBox alone is worth $60, bucks, uh, the discount that they give. Uh, the Western Botanicals uh, membership is forty nine ninety five. Uh, the Safe Castle membership that you get would cost you forty nine ninety five annually. You get it for life for free. I mean, it really does pay for itself. Check it out today. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on members. And with that, let's roll on into uh, your questions for me. First call we have here has to do with gun safes and gun storage. Hello, Jack. My question is about gun safes. How do you store your firearms? Are you more concerned about theft or fire? Thanks for what you do, Jason. So I'm going to try to stay really generic here um, and not specifically answer exactly how I store my guns and some of the things that I might do that may or may not have anything to do with a safe at all. Uh, from a, a, a you know completely operational security standpoint, um, I have a Almost 200,000 people a day listen to this show, so um, I don't want to broadcast exactly what I do. Um, from a standpoint of someone that just wants a gun safe, though, and, and where to put the priority, honestly, you, you probably should put some priority toward the what is the fire rating of the safe. And, and the reason is that you're probably more likely to have to deal with a fire than you are with somebody stealing your guns out of your safe. I'm not saying it won't happen, and if thieves break in your house and they find a safe, they're going to attempt to breach it. And the reality is most of the lower-end safes are fairly easy to breach if you know what you're doing, but generally speaking, people don't break in a house knowing exactly how to breach safes. That's you know The people you see on TV are generally not the people breaking into homes. They're people that are kind of want to go in get what they can get and get out. And one of the things to think about here, and then you use this however you see fit, people that break into homes, generally speaking, go directly to the master bedroom. Master bedroom and the bedroom closet in the master bedroom. That's the first place that they go. And I've actually listened to interviews with like professional cat burglars, guys that did it for a living for a lot of years before they got caught, and they kind of do like the you know community service. This is what I do, how to protect yourself thing as part of their you know you know getting a year off of their sentence or what have you. And one of the guys that that I heard discuss this had robbed people like the Kellogg family, as in the Kellogg cereal family. Yeah, I mean this guy didn't rob you know Joe Blow. He he robbed Upper End. He would break into a house in the middle of the day when people were home, go straight into the master bedroom, lock the door in the master bedroom, you know, wait, obviously, until he could sneak in there without being seen. And he would go about looking for jewelry and anything of value in the closet and what have you. Now, this guy specifically said he wouldn't touch a gun because it totally changed the nature of the crime. And he would then go out the window of the master bedroom, and uh, go on about his life. This would be the time of the day when it would be least likely the arm alarms would be activated. And if uh, mom or dad headed to the door and couldn't get in, instead of like breaking the door down because they thought somebody was in there breaking in, they got an argument with each other. Okay, about who locked the door. Well, I didn't do it. You didn't. so while they're arguing, you hear them arguing and you get out, right? Or you hear the click, 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 click. Oh, damn it! And you're like you know, trying to figure out how to get in, so you have plenty of time to, to get out of dodge. And he would try to do it without ransacking the place so that they wouldn't even notice it. He'd like to get into uh, the jewelry box, take the best jewelry and an eye for it, and it might be a week or two before mom or dad even realize something's missing. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody breaks in your home is going to be that uh, courteous, I guess is the word, or that professional, but it is the bent. And where do most people put their gun safe? In their master bedroom closet. So I'm just saying that maybe that's not the best place for it. Uh, gun saves, uh, you know, unless they're bolted to a concrete floor, they move. Uh, a refrigerator dolly, and you could be out the door with it. So if you have an upstairs, 
I'm not saying for everybody it makes sense, and you know you might damn near kill yourself trying to get it up there. Uh, but you know if it's upstairs, it's harder to get downstairs, and maybe the guy will get killed doing it. So that's something to look at. But I want a combination of security uh, along with um, um, fire resistance for any safe. Because I actually put a premium on some things above my guns from a standpoint of value. That I'll, and I'll, again, I'll leave that at that. Uh, the best safes that you can get, though really not many of them work for guns in my opinion, uh, but maybe some of your handguns would go in here, would be a floor safe. This is where you actually have a company come out and core a hole into the concrete of your floor. And they put a sleeve down in it, and then the, 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 the safe is just a face. That goes and it has and they they core holes into the concrete out to the sides, and when that safe is locked, the bolts engage outward. I do prefer a safe that allows for both combination and key entry. Um, though, if you have a key entry point, uh, a good you know lock sport person may be more likely to be able to actually um, pick that lock than to solve a combination on a complex safe. Uh, but again, you're generally You know, you got to take this, this into your viewpoint. Um, when you put in a safe, a lock, a security system, bars on a window, what you're doing is slowing down and making it inconvenient for a thief. But fire doesn't care. So you see how you, how you kind of balance those two? Now, I'll, I'll give you a little trick that we've used. We came ac across a really cheap fire safe. Um, you know, kind of like you put files and stuff like that, and maybe a handgun or two, maybe some silver in. We came across one that, you know, it's a little bit old. Don't really know where it came from. You know, but it was cheap. Um, you know, secondhand type thing. We have it somewhere in our home that if somebody broke in, it would be easy to find. Uh, I won't say where. But somebody that broke in and was looking for valuables would probably find it. Uh, assuming they didn't have their arm completely devoured by a pit bull, which they probably would, uh, and they got a hold of it, what they would do is pick it up and leave with it. It would be very heavy, and they would think they were, you know, they had found the mother load. It's basically full of rocks. So another theft deterrent is to place something like that, something that would make them expend a great deal of energy to get out the door quickly with. Oh, I've got something good here. I get, I, you know, because that's always the danger with a gun safe. Some of it's sophisticated. They have a pickup truck and a dolly. You know, and it's downstairs and it's not bolted to the floor. The hell with opening your safe. I'll steal the whole safe. You know, I can tell you the story of a young man that got ripped off one time, so, stole the whole soda machine that way, but I won't. But I'm pretty sure the statute of limitations is up on that one. But why would he risk it? All right. But anyway, there you go. I mean. I, I'm going to lean toward the fire protection because most good fire protection uh, rated safes are also fairly secure. I don't get all technical trying to get down to the, you know, the minutia, but if it can either go in the floor or be attached to the floor, uh, that is preferable to me in, in, in some way, shape, or form, and I'll leave it at that. Let's take another one. This one on dealing with wasps around the swimming pool in summertime. Hi, Jack. This is Michael in South Texas. Question. What do you do about uh, invasive red wasp and yellow jackets when you have an above-ground swimming pool and the temperature is over 100 degrees every day? Details. Um, I was stung by a wasp several weeks ago, required medical attention. The other day, my wife was stung. Our children are getting stung. We're trying to avoid that. But when we're in the pool, um, because of the hot, dry weather, Um, it's attractive not just to us, but it's also attractive to uh, red wasps and yellow jackets, and they swarm around there to get water, and it's difficult to swim. Any idea on what we could do to alleviate those would be greatly appreciated. Again, this is Michael in South Texas. Thanks. So let's kind of start off with the uh, stinging, flying stinging insect profile and what we're dealing with. Uh, to me, we really have three classifications of, of insect. Number one are true bees, bumblebees and honeybees and things like that. And, and they're generally like um, a, a, a pro-Second Amendment uh, libertarian uh, housewife with a whole bunch of kids. Remember, all of the ones that are flying around stinging are female. 
Uh, bees generally are, their, their opinion is that unless you're messing with their home uh, or directly messing with them, they'll leave you alone. Uh, but if you mess with them, they'll jack you up if they have to. But if you mess with their home, they will jack you up to the point of killing themselves, which bees have to do. They sting you once and they die. Then we have our various wasps, and I, I think they have a much more uh, ill-earned reputation uh, than, than they are. They're pretty much like bees in the, in the regard that I just said. They don't fly around looking to sting people, like let's say a horse fly or something like that. Have you ever been to the beach when like yellow flies are, are out really heavy or zebra flies are out or you've done any trail walks in the northeast and the black flies, deer flies, are out. I mean, they find you and sting you because they want to feed on you. Wasps really have no desire to, to bother people in general, but they don't like their homes messed with. And if you end up messing with them, um, either intentionally or, um, or, or unintentionally, like you put your hand on them or you rub up against a tree that they're on and they feel threatened or they go into the pool and they go to back off and they end up against the wall of the pool, especially the higher walls of an above-ground pool, they can sting you. And unlike a bee... They don't fall on their sword, right? They sting you multiple times. So they're kind of like, you know, the, uh, the, 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 you know, upstanding housewife with kids, uh, but also used to like run with a street gang and maybe was on the stripper pole, right? They're just a little bit more erratic and they can hurt you more. And then we have like yellow jackets and they're like, that's that thing that I just described plus currently on meth. Right, they they're the true problem child in the bunch, and even they are not necessarily that way. They just go all the way to the extreme easier, and they just seem more willing to sting you. And depending on how they sting you, they can either end up stinging you like a wasp, where they can sting multiple times, or if they they give it all, so to say, they do have a stinger that actually pulls out like a bee. So if you really have a yellow jacket problem, I would consider putting up some yellow jacket traps, and there's a bunch of them, and they all work. Um, and 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 cutting their population down because they they are a, a significant and legitimate issue with comfort and safety, including if you end up with a large nest nearby in the ground, let's say safety of your children, your pets, etc. And I, you know, I hate eradicating anything, but they're probably worth trapping. Just to keep their population down. Because remember what's happening in all these instances. These insects are social insects. That means they, li they live in a hive, a nest of sorts, and they all have a way of communicating to the others, I found something good over here. So if you're trapping yellow jackets, they're not going back to the hive and saying, hey, the, there's this great source of water over here. That cuts down that on as well. The, the bees and the wasps, we have them come to our pool all the time. They cause almost no trouble whatsoever. If you ha accidentally touch one, it may freak out and sting you. If you're splashing around the pool and the surface tension breaks, because what we see them do, specifically the red wasps, they land with their legs extended like a water spider. And they drink water and then they fly right off the water. But if they get a big wave on them, then they end up with the surface tension breaking and they fall into the water and they need to get on something to climb to get out. They usually can't just fly out. And if they climb onto you and they feel human skin and they're in that stress state, they will stay. And that can happen. But to me, in my experience, that's been pretty rare. What has not been rare, and something we've dealt with with every above-ground pool we've owned, and we've owned four at this point, is they like to nest under the lip of the pool, and if you deck the pool, often up under the, the, the deck. And, and specifically, paper wasps, red wasps, uh, ball-faced hornets, things like that, often are big on doing this. And often what you think is, well, they're swarming around the pool for water, And what you really have is, a, is a, a wasp nest up under the rail of the pool. And at some point where you're out, the kids are playing, they're getting ruckusy and whatever. They bang the wall of that pool. They're out there maybe playing volleyball, throwing a football. Boom, it hits that wall. And then all of a sudden, all the angry mamas remember their days on the stripper pole. They get a little bit of excited and they come out with a knife looking to stick somebody. And then you get stuck. Or you're, you know, you're weeding around the pool or something like that, and you bump up against, and that they're because they get up inside. Usually, pool rails have kind of this like straight rail, and then there's a spot where the rib comes up, and it's kind of tucked back in there. You really like that spot, so unless you look for them, you may not even know they're there. 
So you thought you were just weed-eating and you're ignoring this little God cre God's creature that was having a drink, and she decided to stick you with a shiv. What you actually did was disturb her home where her babies are, and you'd shiv somebody too if they did that. So, and I hate to say this, but when they do that, they got to go. And good old-fashioned wasp and hornet spray is the way to go, making sure you do it at a distance where you are not going to get tore up. Uh, and, and to me, when they're living there around that pool that are going to sting my, you know, my grandkids, my nieces, what have you, they got to go. And so I constantly check the, the lip of the pool and under the deck. If I see one forming before they get up ahead of steam, I hit it with that. And what I'll do to kind of discourage them from coming back, because even when it's been hit with that stuff, a lot of times I'll come right back to it in the active season, is when everybody's dead and falling away, I'll, I'll knock it down with a stick, make sure everybody's dead and gone. There's something you can try. I've never done it, but I've heard that it works. And it's painting the surface that, the, that they're nesting on with something called hate blue, height blue, height, hate blue, something like that. It's a, a blue color that's made by Sherman Williams. It's very popular in the Carolinas, specifically uh, South Carolina, for painting the roofs of porches. You see it all over there. Uh, and I'm talking about the roof on the top. I'm talking about when you go under the porch, you look up the covered porch, they paint the whole thing blue. I learned about this from the Dirt Doctor. He has a, Howard Garrett, he has an article about it. I'll link to it in the show notes so you can actually see the, the blue. And I'm sure more than one person makes it, but Sherman Williams is kind of like the go-to for this hate blue. Uh, and, and the way that's spelled, since I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, and now looking at it, I know I am. It's hate. I, I hate, like ain't, but with an H. Hate blue. Like I said, it hate blue. Uh, it's kind of blue. And, and the theory is that You, you paint uh, a ceiling or any kind of a ridgeline surface with this, and these insects, when they look up there, it, to them it looks like the sky, and then they're not attracted to it. So I don't know if it would be worth painting the under lip of your above-ground pool with paint blue. I haven't done it, uh, but it might be something you can consider. Uh, if you have a good spray gun... Um, You know, it would be pretty quick, but overspray would be a worry. The more complicated thing to do, and you'd probably have to do it with a roller or a brush, because if you sprayed it, it's going to come up through the cracks and get all over it, is decking. Um, decking is one I kind of want to try, because it's where I get more of them, is on the deck than the, the ribs of the pool. And what I've thought about doing is buying like a quarter of this stuff and picking the spot that they seem to be most attracted to, which are kind of these two arms of my decking that go out around the pool, and painting you know, a couple square feet of one and seeing if it works. And if it works, then it's worth doing the whole damn thing. Because if it doesn't work, it ain't, it ain't worth doing. So that would be the other thing you could try. But my, my biggest suggestion is make sure that you actually don't have them living uh, up in that pool lip. And like I said, if you, you, they, they'll do it anywhere, but right where the supporting rib comes up and there's that buckle that holds the rails together, Up inside that buckle, it's kind of protected on the sides, and if you were a wasp, you'd probably think that was pretty cool, especially since it's sitting next to it. You know, as far as a wasp is concerned, hey, it's an inland sea. Uh, you know, a 24 foot pool. That's that's a massive amount of water for a wasp. So use a little care uh, with splashing. Use some awareness. Make sure that uh, they're not living there. And if you have a yellow jacket problem, yeah, they're the messed up crazy stripper chick with a switchblade that generally will leave you alone but can be set off quite instantly so be better not to have around in my opinion uh, so trap them and uh, dispose of them accordingly uh, also I think you are a beekeeper uh, Mike so if you are uh, calling out your yellow jacket population is good for your bees because they will toward the end of the year actually raid hives kill bees for a protein source Uh, with that, let's take another one. This one is on crawfish, and this is one I don't have a great answer for. Hi, Jack. This is Autofast from the uh, Zenolay channel. Got a quick question for you. Any suggestions for the annihilation of crawfish? I've got a uh, property that I've got a dam in, a concrete dam, and crawfish bore holes in and around the dam, causing leaks that I've got to go back and on a pretty regular basis. Uh, very few of the crawfish are eating size. Having the Zella channel over for crawfish boil and beer isn't really an option. 
got anything that uh, I might can put in the creek that'll eat the crawfish up, and then maybe can go eat whatever it is. So, down here in Texas, in certain properties near bodies of water and marshy areas, we have a a more common problem with crawfish where people that have you know like acre half acre of grass that they want to maintain will have these little burrows everywhere. Uh, little, little moon craters and the crawfish living there and bang up lawnmowers and stuff. And um, the consensus from just about anybody is you can either completely dry out your property so your grass will die or you learn to live with the crawfish. And frankly, they would have an easier time eradicating the crawfish than you would. You're in a creek. Uh, that means water moves. So it sounds like what you have, and it sounds like you're probably near Miss Awesome Sauce because you said have the Zello Channel over. And I, you, your phone was garbled, so I really couldn't tell exactly who you were, but I think I know who you are. Uh, so if you're where I think you are, um, there's water everywhere, and you're just not going to get rid of them. It's not going to happen. So you need to think more about wherever they're causing a problem, what could we do to mitigate that problem? Um, gabions, which would be um, you know basically metal mesh with rock, Uh, placed along the areas that they're causing you the most grief or more concrete where they're causing you grief uh, might be about the only thing you can do because if you if you successfully eradicated every crawfish on your piece of this little creek and you successfully eradicated all the crawfish a mile up the creek and a mile down the creek to where there wasn't a single one, not even a crawfish nymph, Right or a crawfish egg left. Uh, what's going to happen is that the the they're going to be back in like a couple months because it's crawfish habitat. And pretty much what I've learned about crawfish is they're in an area and you give them a place that it provides them what they're looking for. And muddy creek banks is exactly what they're looking for. Uh, they're going to be there. You could you could eliminate every single one of them and and, and they're still going to be there. Now, I know you said that they're too small to eat, but you might start throwing a crawfish trap in there, and at least you might be able to come to some level of solution. Now, you're not going to eat enough of them. It's not going to happen uh, to uh, to effectively control their population, but, hey, you might as well eat them. Um, if you're not trying to sell them or nothing, the little ones aren't that bad, honestly, to eat. I mean, uh, the number one fish that eats crawfish are smallmouth bass. And as long as there's enough water there, your water temperatures in that part of Tennessee are definitely capable of supporting smallmouth bass. But it's still going to be limited in its effectiveness because um, those smallmouth bass can't get up in the mud where those freaking crawfish are or up in the really shallows where they'll go down to the water's edge and, and whatnot like that. However, if you did set up some crawfish traps and that they were effective and you had a bunch of smallmouth bass swimming around in there, and you took your trap and you kind of shook them up really, really good so they were all disoriented and maybe a little bit screwed up, and then just threw them all in the water, you'd end up feeding your bass because those confused little ones, they'll eat them quick. And maybe you could farm some smallmouths. I don't know. And that's a, that's a it's kind of a wild, crazy idea, and I don't know that it would actually work. But my, my best guess in, in anything effective is going to be if you had gabions, where they're causing the problem because it can't be everywhere is a problem it's got to be kind of concentrated to an area if you got a concrete dam then it's like the edge is right around that and it would probably be cheaper to do gabions uh, than to do uh, you know all concrete far enough back uh, to where wherever they would bore at that point would no longer be an issue I guess um Because what you're doing is you're not making it where they can't. It's they don't want to because it's not convenient. It's not comfortable. It's kind of like getting a cat to stop peeing in a place in your house. Take some two-sided tape and uh, put a bunch of two-sided tape right where they're peeing, and then they don't like it anymore, and they become un, you know, unfixated with that area. Uh, I really don't know what else you can do. Uh, anybody's got a solution to this one, love to hear from you in today's show notes. But, uh, yeah, I mean... Fish bait, feed your smallmouths, eat them even if they're little, I guess is all I got. Let's take another one. 
Hey, Jack. Um, got a question on elderberries. I was wondering what um, I can do with some details. I have a bunch of elderberries growing on my property, and I was just wondering if you had any ideas on things you can do with them. Um, so, yeah, uh, thanks for everything you do, and have a good day. Bye. Let's start out with the easiest way to harvest them. And I don't remember who it was that told me this. On, I think it was on the Regen Ag Group. might have been on the TSP Facebook group. I'm, I'm not really sure. But it was a couple of years ago. I was picking a bunch of them to do some things with. And I was like, you know, there's, it, it, my area, it's 100 degrees out by the time they're ripe. And you're out there sweating your brains out, and you're getting your fingers all purple unless you want to wear rubber gloves. And then if you're wearing, like, nitrile gloves or something when it's 100 degrees out, it's gross. You're really hot then, you know. And this guy said, just cut the whole clusters off, throw them in a five-gallon bucket or a bag, and, and throw them in the freezer till they're frozen. And take them out when they're frozen, take a clean five-gallon bucket and just hold the stem and smack them on the side of the, the bucket, and they'll all just come off. And even if you rake them with your hands, as long as they're frozen, they won't bleed on your hands and you won't get all, you know, purple hands. And then you can dump them right back in a Ziploc bag before they defrost, throw them back in the freezer and they don't stick together in a big lump, and you can take out as much as you want at a time. Since I saw that, that's what I do, and it's what I recommend everybody does. So that's how I'd recommend harvesting them. What can you do with them? Uh, you can, And you're going to want to look up recipes for this stuff, because I can't just give out all the recipes if you get bored. Um, and I don't have them off the top of my head either. But the number one use that Country Boy has for elderberries is elderberry wine. Uh, if you've ever heard the, uh, and if you listen to this show, you've heard me play it a couple times, but the uh, uh, Monty Python uh, Quest for the Holy Grail skit with the French taunting, there's a, there's a line in there where the Frenchman says to King Arthur, uh, your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. Uh, and the hamster comment, you know, hamsters breed and have lots of other hamsters and are promiscuous, so your mother is a, a woman of ill repute. And elderberries are used to make wine, So, and your father was a drunk. So your mother was a word that begins with an a, a W and ends with something that you used to row a boat, and uh, your dad was a drunk, right? I don't know why I've, I don't want to say that word, in spite of all the other words I say on the air. I don't want to say that word on the air. Uh, but you know what it is. So uh, the, you can make wine from elderberry, and it makes pretty good wine. I think it makes a far superior mead. Uh, my basic recipe for elderberry mead is three pounds of honey to the gallon is my standard amount of honey and about four cups of elderberries. Pour the four cups of elderberries into your one gallon ferment fermenter uh, and dump you know, hot water in the 160 to 170 degree range on them. It will cause them to burst and pasteurize so that whatever icky gick wild yeast that you may not want is on there is, you know, Uh, neutralized, uh, add your honey and your hot water, shake and shake and shake with the lid on. Uh, I use the uh, one-gallon plastic uh, bottles that apple juice comes in as fermenters for my primary fermenter. Uh, don't fill it all the way to the top. Uh, fill it, you know, good amount of headspace so it doesn't blow over. And uh, then pitch your yeast. I, of course, use the Pasteur Blanc in combination with the Pasteur Cuvée. Um, the Red Star Cuvée and the Pastor, Red Star Pasteur Blanc uh, together. And some people say that's not really a great way to go, but everybody who drinks my mead likes it. And ferment it out you know, for a couple, three weeks until your aggressive fermentation ends. Uh, then rack it off into a one-gallon fermenter. Add enough water to bring it to the top. I just use pure, clean water out of my Berkey for that. Uh, I don't worry about boiling it. I've never had a problem. I make sure it's in a clean container, and it comes straight out of the Berkey, and it goes right in. That gives me an actual gallon of mead. I run my secondary fermentation for two to three weeks until it's completely clear and calm and quiet, and then bottle as you see fit. Um, I have also found that adding a little bit of vanilla, probably one split Madagascar vanilla bean to the gallon, in the primary and then not including it in the secondary or it gets to where it's like it stinks of vanilla instead of smells of vanilla. Uh, it makes it the vanilla elderberry something everybody really liked as vanilla blackberry was another one that was a big hit to actually quite similar. 
Elderberry syrup is simply made with hot water and sugar and elderberries. And you, again, you can look up a recipe for it. Uh, it can be used on food. It can be used in mixed drinks. It can be used, you take sparkling water with a little bit of that. It makes a very refreshing drink. Um, and it can be used straight as like a cough syrup. You can make an elderberry tincture. This is using grain alcohol you know, or high-proof vodka, like 100-proof vodka. And you put your elderberries in it, and you end up with a concentrated elderberry solution. Both the syrup and the tincture can be used uh, during cold and flu season. And most folks uh, see elderberry as one of the most valuable medicinal plants that we have. And it certainly has a lot going for it from a standpoint of vitamins, nutrients, and immune-fighting um, uh properties as well. I'm not a jelly guy, but elderberry makes an awesome, awesome jelly. And again, you can look up recipes for that as well. And then it's a bit late in the year now uh, for just about anywhere I know of. But when the flowers are on, you have this big like flat pad of flowers. Uh, they're actually pretty good. You can look up something called elderberry fritters which are made with elderflowers. And it's kind of like a pancake batter type thing, and you mix the elderflowers in them, and then you fry them, and they're really, really, really good. They're also highly non-paleo if you're on the low-carb lifestyle. But they're self-limiting. You're only going to get those once a year, so it's a good you know, like midsummer special treat. And then there's something that, that folks make called elderflower fizz, uh, and, and that's really just you take some... Um, elderberry flowers and you put them into a, a, a you know a, a cup or a, a, a basin of some sort you use hot water and honey and kind of like you're making an elderflower mead uh, and you do use a brewer's yeast or a champagne yeast is actually best because it's clean tasting um, but then once it begins to ferment and your bottle gets uh, tight and you feel it's got pressure on it you throw it in the refrigerator just like making, you know, root beer at home or something like that, where you you use you actually use sugar and yeast, and it starts to ferment. But when you throw it in the refrigerator, you kill the fermentation off. And if it's too much fermentation, you can bleed a little gas off of it. Steep that stored in your refrigerator. And yeah, there's a little bit of alcohol in it, but I I, I wouldn't hesitate to let a kid drink it because it's just it's a very insignificant amount. And if you look up like elderberry champagne, elderberry fizz. Uh, you'll find recipes for that as well. Or you could go ahead and use those elderflowers to make mead. Um, I make three flowers mead. That's made with elderflower, heatherflower, and chamomile. But I, I imagine elderflower by itself would make a pretty good mead. Um, so you can use the flowers for a variety of things as well. So those are some ideas for you and some places to start looking stuff up. I personally think that Either a tincture or a syrup is something that anybody that has access to elderberries should make every year, and it should be part of your cold and flu fighting and prevention strategy uh, in the winter. I do believe it is it is effective, and uh, it's something that if you talk to anybody that kind of grew up with grandparents that did this stuff, uh, they probably still do it too, because it ain't just folklore. People would stop doing it if it didn't work. Uh, with that, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Jake Robinson in Tennessee. A question about cryptocurrency. With the new ETF uh, approval around August, or at least as early as August 16th, is that going to cause Bitcoin to moon? The background is Bitcoin has been hovering around the 62, 6,500 range, going sideways for quite a while. Recently bounced up over 7,000. I'm pretty good gain in a couple of days. Everything I'm looking at seems like they're saying it's ready for a bull run. Just want to know what your idea is. If they approve the ETF, will this cause a massive influx of money into the Bitcoin market? And where do you see Bitcoin going? I've heard it going as high as 40,000 by the end of the year. Just curious. And if you want to throw in what the rest of the market looks like for altcoins. I'd like to hear that too. Thanks. So there's no doubt that Bitcoin and therefore all cryptocurrencies took a beating over the last about six months, seven months. And Bitcoin is on a hardcore rally right now. And part of it is being spurred by this discussion about a Bitcoin ETF. And if I thought there was a guarantee that these ETFs would get approved this year, I probably would have, if nothing else, got rid of some altcoins and moved more into Bitcoin, though 
some of the, I mean, all the positions I'm in right now, I feel are good long-term positions, even with the alts. Um, because, yes, if this happens, you you have to understand that we're going to have a massive influx of capital into Bitcoin. Understand that the global pensions market, right, is about $41 trillion. $41 trillion. Um, so you're talking about $400 billion of capital coming into the Bitcoin market if 1% of that goes into Bitcoin. And you have to think about the probability that something like that, like if the ETF gets approved and it was available, that you know in total 1% would end up in Bitcoin. Because you have to think about it this way. If inside your IRA, your 401k, etc., there was an ETF or a fund that included an ETF uh, that had cryptocurrency in it, um, even if it wasn't 100% it just had some in it, how many people would say, well, I put 2% of my money in there, 5% of my money, it's just, it's, that's my speculation money, right? You know, that's, that's, that's that really thin slice of the pie. Okay, and, and that may, even if it does really well, it may not have a huge impact on their individual portfolio. But the impact on Bitcoin as a whole, with the limit of only 21 million Bitcoins, and millions of them not even being recoverable, they're gone. There's an estimate of anywhere between 3 to 5 million Bitcoins that are either gone, lost, or unrecoverable in some way. Um, and there's less mineable every year. So... If we end up with an ETF, and I've always said this, then you are going to have possibly something crazy like $40,000 or $100,000 a unit where people won't even talk in Bitcoins anymore. They'll, 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 you know, they'll, they'll be talking in some block of Satoshis, right? You know, like a uh, hundred Satoshi block or something like that. They'll come up with a name for it, uh, a, a cent, cent Satoshi or something. I don't know. Uh, so, yes, that potential is there. My my concern right now with over-exuberance in the Bitcoin market, and Lord knows cryptocurrency traders love over-exuberance, especially the ones that really know what they're doing, because they don't get over-exuberant. Over they stoke the fires, and they profit by everybody else's over-exuberance, and then they take their profits, and when the exuberance goes away, we have another pullback. And I think you might see that in the next coming uh, months, unless the rally that has Bitcoin since Jake called up to about 8,000 and change um, continues because of other reasons for optimism and other, uh, you know, the fact that a lot of the fear, uncertainty, and doubt that, that caused the drop um, is gone. Like, okay, all these worries that some country was going to kill it, you know, some, it was, it's going to be destroyed, it's finally going to be made illegal, whatever, like, it's still here. Uh, so a lot of people got scared by it getting up over 16,000 and then crumbling down to like five. Um, I sat there and didn't care, but it's easy to do when your entry point is in, you know, below $100. Um, but when it's, you know, if your entry point was at like 12,000, that was pretty harsh, wasn't it? So I don't know what's coming for the rest of the year. I will tell you, this is where we are now, though. The days of people rolling out a clone coin and having it be worth $300 are over. It's done. We're at a point now, and this is what I said when the, I said this, this bloodbath is coming. Lord knows it was worse than I expected, but I said it was coming. And what I said was, on the other side of it, the cryptos that will make it and be around are going to have to have a value proposition that's unique. Or an alternative to Bitcoin is not an all, you know, a unique thing. We're, we're a privacy coin. Well, there's a thousand of them, so that's not unique in of itself. There's going to have to be a reason some of them win and, and most of them lose. And some of them will win, will win because they were there first, because everybody knows them, because everybody's familiar with them. And some will be there for the unique things they enable and empower the market to do. But you cannot have a market like this and have... 10,000 successful cryptos. You can't even have a 1,000 successful long-term cryptocurrencies. You're looking somewhere maybe in the, in the neighborhood of 100 to 200, probably about the same number of countries that you would expect to see in the world type of thing. Uh, and Lord knows even with successful countries, some currencies are damn near worthless 
And I'm not talking about the U.S. dollar and the Federal Reserve. I'm talking about literal uh, relative currency strength one to another. Let's say some of the countries in um, in East Asia that you know it's like 10,000 baht for a you know a hot dog or something on the street, and you find out that's like 10 cents. So yeah, we because because why would we have that many be successful? And unlike companies where the stock is based on the valuation of what the company does. Even though a lot of people have looked at cryptocurrency that way, that ain't how it works. Now, some of them have been engineered to possibly create a return through proof of stake or through some sort of uh, value case use case uh, that returns a dividend. And, of course, that's been looked at as a security, and it's held the market back, I believe. But um, my prediction for cryptocurrency through the rest of this year is unless something like the approval comes, and I don't think it's going to, pretty boring. Pretty boring for the rest of you. A little up and down, a little up and down, people freaking out about it. But I think you're seeing a stabilization phase now, and people actually starting to realize, okay, this is not something that's going to get me rich overnight. And Jake said, in case you missed it, cause it to moon. For those that haven't heard that term, when a, when a cryptocurrency gives a huge run-up and makes people into millionaires, they call it going to the moon. They call it just saying mooning. Uh, probably not this year. Um, th th this is the issue. The day it happens, it's a legitimacy that the government wouldn't really prefer that it have, and the government's the one making the call. The issue, though, is, you know, things like, you say, well, like the FTC is not an elected body. They are highly influenced by elected bodies, and they're highly influenced by money. And there's a lot of people with a lot of money that, in spite of the fact that the banksters don't really want this, a lot of billionaires do. A lot of billionaires are fans of Bitcoin and other currencies. And so I think there is pressure by the constituency of the elite, both elected and appointed, that sooner or later will push us past that resistance level. And uh, Because they're making the case of how can you have an ETF for freaking lithium? How can you have an ETF for just about every commodity on the planet and not have an ETF for this And you can't just say it's made up, it's not a commodity, because it, it's, it's traded on you know hundreds of exchanges across the world. And it's used in transactions, and it's as valid as any other currency that we have an ETF. Or you have an ETF for the U.S. dollar. You have an ETF, for God's sakes, for some of these, very, you know, these, these countries on very shaky ground. And it's, they, they have less fluidity and exchangeability than Bitcoin. So legalistically, you can make a pretty good case for, if you're going to allow this, then you need to allow that. And then with money pushing it, sooner or later it happens, and when it does, uh, it will be a boon to Bitcoin. One of the things, though, that it will also do is the altcoins that have survived the bloodbath, that have a long-term value case, will probably make people more money than Bitcoin will itself. It, it's almost like looking at the altcoins in some instances almost like an option on Bitcoin, Uh, in options trading, there's a hard rule that a, a small move in the security will create a magnified move in the option. Uh, altcoins are not that quite correlated to Bitcoin, but people made a lot more money on altcoins in the two, the two years before this big drop than they tended to make on Bitcoin, honestly. So uh, do that with as you will. And remember, I always say, If the money you're investing in cryptocurrency isn't money that you would take to Las Vegas to gamble with, you probably shouldn't be putting it in cryptocurrency. Do not put your kid's child, your care fund, or anything like that in there. Uh, see this as that high-risk play with incredible long-term potential. Let's take another one. Good afternoon, Jack. Is there a list available of the fruit trees that you planted in the food forest at, at your location? background. I'm a recently retired 30-year retail nurseman who's relocated to the Waco area. I find that I live in a fruit tree desert, and I'm unable to get any information of significance from my local nurseries about uh, what are performers or not performers. I'm told the apples won't grow in my area, but I've been successful with six different varieties so far. I'd like to expand my operation to where I can set up a small, low, small-scale You pick operation with apples, peaches, and plums. Any information you can help me with on this, I would really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a blessed day. 
I do not have a list of trees that that are planted on my property. I'm not that organized. Um, but having, you know, planted hundreds of trees and lost hundreds of trees and had hundreds survive, I can tell you the the in general trees that do best on my property: plums, peaches, and pears. Plums, peaches, and pears. And um, jujube does incredible here, though. One thing to know about jujube is it has very, very sharp thorns uh, that kind of are somewhere between a black locust and a honey locust. They're not as bad as a honey locust, but they're almost as bad, and they're worse than a black locust. And in some ways, they're as bad as a honey locust. They're just not as... I, I would say they're, they're not as bad, but the small thorns are worse. I don't know if that makes sense, but you know, honey locusts have these big, evil thorns on them, And it's like when when the jujube is just the sucker is just coming up, the little thorns on it they're so damn sharp. And if you plant jujube, you know at least a couple times a year, you're gonna be going out with a good pair of leather gloves and a pair of pruners and pruning off all your suckers. I think it's totally worth it because they do so well in our climate. Um, but just know that's the case before you plant them, so you don't hate me. Uh, the beauty of that is, you know, one of the struggles we have in Texas is water. And the reason they sucker so much is that their root system is so big and so aggressive. And because of that, they tend to do really well uh, with uh, drought tolerance once established. So those are the ones that do best. What else does good? Mulberry does very good here. Um, apples do okay. What you're looking for in an apple that will do well here is one that is blight-resistant. Because that's the main problem I've had with apples. Not keeping them alive, not making them productive, not having them get blight. So look for blight-resistant apple varieties. There's actually an apple orchard uh, up near Farmer's Branch, Louisville, somewhere like that, which isn't that far from me, I want to get to someday, that has a pick-your-own-apple thing that's only maybe 30, 40 miles from where I live, uh, north of me, so further north of you, but very similar climate. I mean, nothing you can't do. Um, and, and so those are your main ones. Now, what I'd like to do is kind of help everybody. If you have the budget, you just get a whole bunch of crap and plant it, and whatever does well, you plant more of that. Um, but the way you can really determine what does well is try to look for what is commercially grown in your area. And you would find that there is some commercial apple production, though it's small scale in Texas, But we do really well with commercial production of pears, peaches, and plums in Texas. So that's where I would tell anybody to start out is what is produced um, in your, your state or your region commercially. Then what are the major problems that exist? Blight, fungal diseases, etc., insect pests, whatever. And then try to find the varieties that are easiest to protect from, or that have the most resistance to those things. Make that the core of what you do, and then when you want to get a bit eccentric and see, like, can I grow uh, uh, small fruit uh, edible skin kiwis in Texas, uh, you do that as your, your kind of your edgy things, and you try a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and the ones that work are the ones that you run with. Some other things that grow really well in Texas that I found, uh, uh, goji berries do really well here. Um, Autumn Olive does really well here. And given that uh, Autumn Olive does good, it's its big cousin, its older cousin, uh, or larger cousin variety of fruit, uh, Gumi, G-O-U-M-I, which is a fruit uh, comes from a lot of places, but like really heavily out of the Ukraine. Uh, those are bushes, but they do really well. Elderberry does really good in Texas, especially Sambucus nigra, the black native mulberry to the United States. Uh, Sambuca condensis, I think, is the European edible variety uh, that's most popular. It does okay, but Sambucus nigra is, is really where you want to look for uh, hardiness in our climate. Hansen's bush cherry uh, does really good in our climate. So all of those are things that you probably would not find um, being grown commercially. So there's other things that you can do. In the end, you know, look for zone hardiness, something that is hardy at least one zone above and below your zone uh, is, is a good place to look. So if it's, if it's something that like your zone is edgy for, like zone 8 and below, uh, because it, it can get too hot, or zone you know, let's, say, let's say zone 5 to 8, uh, and you're at zone 8, it, it might or might not work, because you can be very 9-like at times, 
And remember, there's parts of Washington State that are Zone 8 and parts of Texas that are Zone 8, and they're very, very different. But that's you know, kind of your guideline. When I, when I see something that says, you know, it'll, it'll grow well in Zone 8 and below, uh, or I mean, sorry, 8 and above, uh, with 8 being like the bottom, I know I'll probably lose it in my winter, even though technically, technically I'm Zone, zone 8. Uh, because we could have some really harsh winters here because of the climate and what have you. And then, you know, your soil type's going to have a lot to do with it. I believe that I would have a lot more success uh, if my soil was like a foot and a half deep instead of like 4 to 11 inches deep. So if you had you know, Waco, there's a lot of that good black loam and kind of sand, uh, black prairie clay and sand soil uh, mixture. And, and if you have that and you have depth, there's probably not a lot you can't grow. Uh, if you pay attention to it, understand its requirements, and take care of it. So hopefully that helps you there. And with that, we've uh, wrapped up another episode of the show. I'd like to thank all of you who have joined us today. Tomorrow we'll have the uh, listener call in. I'm sorry, we'll have the expert counsel show. Uh, we'll have uh, a whole lineup of experts giving you some stuff, and I've already got a lot of great stuff in for tomorrow, so I know the show will be worth tuning into. If you enjoy this show and you, you like us and you want us to be around, uh, we do need your support, and the best way you can support us uh, in a painless way that I know of is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com, you'll see all of the items that we've reviewed on Amazon, and uh, you can also check out the deals of the day on Amazon, etc. And as long as you do your online shopping uh, through tspaz.com, you help us out no matter what you buy, and you can see our daily reviews. I have a product for you today. It's a new one for you guys anyway. I've been using it a long time. It's actually for my dogs and for your dogs. It is Nutramax Cosquin DS Plus for dogs. Uh, this is basically a supplement that includes glucosamine, chondroitin, um, and MSM. And those are all things that are good for our joints. And just think about dogs on average live like 10 to 13 years. Now, oldest dog he ever lived, somebody's going to write me and say, my dog was 18 or whatever. I understand. Oldest dog ever lived was named Maggie. She died recently. She was 30 years old. So there's exceptions to the rule. But dogs generally live 10 to 13 years. And I believe that, you know, it could be more like 13 to 16 years with proper care. But there's, you know, they get old fast. And as they reach an older age, you know, when a dog is like seven to eight years old, uh, they're starting to go and have the problems that we have in our 50s and 60s. But unlike us, if you're 55, you got like, you know, 30 years before you're 85. Dog's 55. He's got like three or four years before he's 85. So it's an accelerated uh, roll into things like arthritis, etc. And... My dog, Max, is a German Shepherd. They're known for having hip and joint problems. He's huge. He's 150 pounds. That, that makes the problem worse. And I put him on this stuff a few months ago, and it's made a dramatic difference in his life. I actually take an MSM and uh, glucosamine chondroitin supplement myself for my joints and pain, and I include turmeric with that. Um, this stuff really works very good for your pups. And it's a tablet that's chewable, kind of liver-flavored is what it smells like anyway. Took a little conjoling to get them to eat it, but they eat it. And uh, I, I, I'll just say I use it for my dogs. You can read my review. I talk about the dosages I gave them, uh, getting them started on it, and how I got them to eat it and, and all that other good stuff. But I'll just put it this way. I have hurt myself a lot in my life. Um, I dislocated my shoulder on a jump at the military, I did a lot of hiking, rock climbing. I had several significant athletic injuries uh, as a kid. I served in the airborne, uh, served in the military carrying packs, and, and, and you know, put your body through all types of things. And it, now in my, my mid-40s and headed toward my late 40s faster than I want to admit, I have a lot of pain. And, uh, you know, using things like turmeric and glucosamine, chondroitin, MSM, uh, and vitamin C, believe it or not, have done a lot to alleviate that pain and to make my life a lot more uh, bearable. Uh, a bottle of this stuff is, uh, let me check because I don't remember exactly, I think it's like 40 bucks. Uh, a, bo a big bottle of the stuff is actually 60 bucks. I was thinking of the 132 count bottles, 34.95. 250 count bottle is 59.95. And I go through more than most of you will because I have a 100-pound dog, a 150-pound dog, and a 65-pound dog. You know, if you have one dog's 40 or 50 pounds, you're giving them one of these a day. So 250, you know, the last you only on three-quarters of a year. Um, 
so it, it is a little bit of an expense. And, and if, I, if I had to worry about putting food on my kid's table, obviously, you know, probably I wouldn't own three big dogs to begin with because they cost money anyway. But I may have to make harder decisions about what they get. But given that I can afford to do this for them, for all they do for me, protecting my home, you know, my pit bull sleeps next to my grandson all night long when he's here. I know that boy's safe. Um, they bring a lot to our lives. To me, to know that I'm alleviating their pain actually means a lot to me. So that's why I wanted to bring this product to you today. If you want to know more, you can read my review. You can find it at tspaz.com. When you go to tspaz.com, you want to see the most recent reviews. Uh, all you really got to do, you'll see a link to see the current item of the day. And that'll give you a chronological listing, and you can find all our stuff by category as well. And remember, guys, if it's there, I own it, I use it, I spent my money on it, or I wouldn't recommend that you do. Uh, but check out that review today. I think it'll give you a, a really good understanding of this. I even cite a study uh, that was done on humans uh, using glucosamine and chondroitin that conclusively showed uh, that they did provide relief. And I think the most important thing is they compared it to a, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory and, and Advil-like thing, but it was a more powerful one. It, it did work better at relieving pain, but it relieved pain uh, by addressing the inflammation itself as the pain, where glucosamine and chondroitin and MSM actually help with the rebuilding of cartilage and actually help to maintain the joint itself. Uh, and you can read my thoughts on vitamin C for dogs and humans as well in the PS of today's review, and that might be worth checking out as well. If anybody has any questions on this one, let me know. I'll answer them because it's a bit complex, and I want to wrap things up for the day. Uh, that brings us to our song of the day. It's by Nirvana. It's called Come As You Are. Uh, Kurt Cobain said that this song was about people and what people expect from them. Uh, it also has tremendously uh, clear uh, references to drug use. And um, it's it's been seen as kind of two different things, like the cold concept, come as you are, and acceptance of everybody and things like that, and then drug use as well. I almost think what Kurt was saying here, and we'll not be able to ask him because, of course, he took his own life, um, just about two years after the song was released, by the way, um, is that... Drug use equalizes everybody. That, that, that everybody is lowered. I believe, I believe he, at this point, he was understanding how bad, because I think the drug he's talking about here is, is primarily heroin. And, and you guys know me, I got no problem with cannabis at all. And I think that cannabis can be abused. I also think it can be quite useful to people. And I think that unless you go out of your way to make it harmful, it's relatively harmless. Uh, unless you let it control your life or something like that. I've seen people destroy their lives way worse with alcohol than I've ever seen anybody do with cannabis. But heroin is a gutter drug. Heroin's a drug that, you know, I don't think prohibition really works. But, I, you know, if you're going to prohibit something, I, I kind of get that one. Um, it, and what I take away from this is that, you know, you might as well come as you are because if you come into this world... We're all the same. It'll it'll pull us all down and just make us all feel good for a brief period of time. But in the end, it destroy us all. And if uh, it spent a little less time in that world, I don't know. Kurt Cobain might still be with us, making some of the most amazing music of all time. I kind of feel like um, a big part of, of real, honest, authentic music died with the death of Nirvana and I know that the whole band didn't die and a lot of the guys went on to do other things Foo Fighters etc but uh, it, it just ain't the same anymore we live in a world of Justin Bieber's and Miley Cyrus's now it's kind of insane um, but I would say you know we're almost to the end of a week try to get the good side of this song that whole you know let's accept everybody come as you are with that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. <laughs>